You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, where we read books by black authors, and they are talked about by a black author. And you can listen to it if you are black or not black, that's okay. Uh, This week on the podcast, we read the book Ujamaa, which was written by the first president of Tanzania. And here we go, trying to say the name for the first time. Uh, His name is Julius... Nairi? Okay, I feel okay about that. Julius Nairi, first president of Tanzania. And I just want to say really quickly how I came to um, know who this man was. I feel ashamed that I didn't know earlier, but I was listening to a podcast by Bomani Jones, who is a great sportscaster. His sister is Tairi Jones, the great American novelist. Go read her books if you haven't. And uh, he mentioned that one of his father's heroes was Julius Nairi. And uh, his father is a professor at uh, Clark University in Atlanta. I I think his father is still a professor. I'm not sure. But so, um, to me, that came highly recommended. Bomani Jones is not a normal uh, sportscaster. He he studied for a PhD in economics and then um, stopped that and went into writing and sportscasting. So, anyway, uh, that's how I came along this book. And so uh, I wanted to read a book by Julius Nairi, and this was a collection of his essays on socialism. Many of these essays are actually transcribed lectures that he gave to um, different audiences. Some uh, some audiences were peasant farmers, and some audiences were intellectuals, and uh, he was able to, to talk to everybody in their kind. So, um, yeah, all right, so let's hop in. What we're going to do here is we're going to break up the book this way. We're going to talk about the book itself like as a writing style, how it's written, and then we're going to talk about the ideas in the book, and then we're going to finish by talking about the man, and when we talk about the man, we'll we'll incorporate more pieces from that um, that short biography that I read. So first of all, the, the writing style of the book. Um, so Julius Nairi, the reason he's the first president of Tanzania is because before Tanzania, there was no Tanzania. Uh, it was a colonial state, and it was two territories, two completely separate territories. There was Zanzibar, and then there was, um, oh boy, we're going to try to say it again. Here we go. Tanganyika, Tanganyika, which was its own separate republic, and that republic was comprised of many different ethnicities. Uh, so... Julius Nairi steered this region into independence, first uh, wrestled it away from the Brits, and then um, linked with Zanzibar and created Tanzania. And I bring all this up, what does this have to do with the writing style? I bring all this up because he steered the ship from the early 60s all the way into the 80s, and during that time had to put out a lot of fires. And the way he put out fires wasn't with strong-arm tactics that you saw in a lot of different African countries that struggled after decolonization. The way he put out fires was by being a expert uh, teacher, a great scholar, an intellectual, and a, a master of debate. 
Um, in fact, uh, as far as the teaching aspect of it goes, he loved to be called... If you Google the Swahili word for teacher, um, as I did to figure out how to pronounce it, what comes up is Julius Nayuri. And the Swahili word is Mualimu, which means teacher. He taught before he got into politics, right after he finished graduate school. And so when you're reading him, what comes across is his ability to teach, but not feel like he's being didactic or condescending. That's the most important part when you're teaching anybody anything, right? Like nobody wants to feel like you're talking down to them. And so Nairi never makes you feel like he's, he never makes you feel like you're being talked down to. He goes slowly. He explains every side of everything. He's very objective and he elucidates it perfectly. By the end of him talking about something, you've understood it. You haven't felt like you were getting admonished or scolded by some kind of a browbeating intellectual. And, um, and you have a greater understanding. You might even be happy. Is that kind of that kind of talk or at the end of it, you feel like you've been through a fun experience. So I just want to read a couple of passages that highlight what I'm talking about. The first one is a little bit dry, but it's good because it shows how he tackles every side of an issue. This passage is from the fourth essay in the book. And in it, he's talking about the issue of Africanization, which was the idea that um, a lot of Tanzanians, or at least a, a section of Tanzanians, wanted former colonial um, colonial uh, people who were in high positions and uh, Arabs and um, Asians removed from their posts and replaced by Africans. And uh, Julius Nairi was big on the idea of Pan-Africanism and Africa for Africa, but he's also big on the idea of citizens of Tanzania were citizens. So a lot of the Arab citizens and Asian citizens were generational citizens, and it was his feeling that they shouldn't be removed the moment that we start to make um, demarcations about who is a real African and who's not a real African is the moment we will descend into chaos and it will ruin the fragile independence and unity that we have. Okay, so in this fourth lecture, what he's trying to get across is that we can't do that for that reason. And also we can't do it because maybe we're not qualified to do it yet. This is a very fragile issue. You could really insult a lot of people. So here's how he goes about it. This does not mean that any person can do any job simply because they are old and wise, nor that educational qualifications are not necessary. This is a mistake our people sometimes fall into as a reaction against the arrogance of the book learned. A man is not necessarily wise because he is old. A man cannot necessarily run a factory because he has been working in it as a laborer or storekeeper for 20 years. But equally, he may not be able to do so if he has a doctorate in commerce. The former may have honesty and ability to weigh up men. The latter may have the ability to initiate a transaction and work out the economics of it. But both qualifications are necessary in one man if the factory is to be successful and modern enterprise serving our nation. It is as much a mistake to overvalue book learning as it is to undervalue it. I just think this is a really good tempered passage where he doesn't accuse anybody of anything. He just lays it all out for you. Hey, here's the issues. Here's what's wrong. And here's why this won't work. Um, it's just a fantastic... Uh, just a fantastic little aside. All right, the second version of this comes from the biography I read, which was written by uh, a non-black author. But uh, <laughs> it quotes, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it quotes a Julius Nairi um, speech that he gave. 
And this one is really good and really shows you how he's a, a talented orator and he's very talented at uh, giving analogies. So for this one, he's talking about the difficulties uh, post-decolonization. Um, and I'll just hop right in. You, you'll get the analogy yourself. Here he says, When hunting, there is no problem, other than maybe someone gets wounded by an arrow. But that is not a big problem. Problems start when the animal has died. That's when fighting starts. Because this one wants that piece, and another one cuts another piece, and that's when people start to get their fingers cut. This is the difficulty of having a prime minister in the country. The hunters, in this case, are you, the labor unions, TANU, which was a the political party, cooperatives, etc. We have cried for independence without difficulty. Now that this animal called independence has fallen, conflicts begin. So that's a fantastic passage. Um... When, when I was reading the chapter, it was called an animal, this animal called independence. And I didn't know what it meant. What does this analogy mean? Seems like it would be a wild analogy. And then when you actually get to the passage, it makes perfect sense. So um, that's the style of the book. You, you are, it's like being talked to by a friendly, really smart elder. Um, whichever elder you prefer. Father, grandfather, mother, grandmother, aunt, uncle. Um, you're just getting great life advice and then it turns out oh the person who's talking to you about this has a master's in political science and um created a modern nation and shepherded it through its most uh, tumultuous time so pretty great pretty great all right so that's the style of the book uh now the ideas in the book so the name of the book is ujama which is a word i'd never heard heard before um it means in swahili extended family or brotherhood and this idea is not uh, Nairi's um, own idea. Well, at least not 100%. So he apparently read a book by an elder from uh, near Mount Kilimanjaro, near Kilimanjaro. The elder's name was Petro Itosi Marial. I, I apologize for butchering these names. Um, so at some point, Nairi read this book and then it inspired him. Uh, to come up with this idea of Ujamaa. Now, there are two big aspects to this Ujamaa thing that I want to talk about, and really one that I want to talk about, because the other one I'm not qualified to talk about, okay? So, the so just very quickly, the basic idea is that Ujamaa is African socialism, or maybe it's better to say socialism with an African twist. Um, uh, Nairi's assertion is that... Um, Pre-colonialism, Africa was inherently socialistic, that people lived in tribes and they shared what they grew, what they hunted, and that this all just kind of fell into place. And so that there was an, uh, a natural inclination for African peoples to follow a socialistic path. And he specifically goes out of his way to say in one of, it may have been the Arusha Declaration, which is uh, transcribed in um in the Ujamaa book, he specifically goes out of his way to say that he rejects European socialism on the grounds that European socialism is based off the idea that it is a natural progression after capitalism, right? That's the whole Marxist idea. And this is where we are going to stop with this talk because uh, that is just past my pay grade, right? I only have so much economics under my belt. Um, and turns out that that was also a problem for Tanzania because um, although this was a great idea, it may have been a bit too idealized or utopian. And in fact, while reading this book, which was published in the 1960s, and most of these lectures were given in the early 1960s, 
or pre-1967, I was wondering, like, how much of this happened? You know, I, I almost didn't want the spoiler alert of going and reading the biography. I wanted to find out how much was Nairi able to actually do, you know? Because he's got all these great ideas for, like, cooperative farms in which people live on a Ujama farm. And so he organizes, like, um, maybe rural farmers who are living in uh, disparate regions of of uh, Tanzania, he organizes them and brings them in on these Ujama farms and they're going to work together and they're going to have uh, communal plows and they're going to give up their um, traditional tools and they're going to move towards ox plows and then the ox plows will be replaced later by tractors and it was going to be this progression and the whole idea was that instead of forcing capitalism and industrialization into this country, let's just increase our agricultural basis grow a bunch of vegetables, export, uh, not just vegetables, but in, you know, any, any raw agricultural product that we can export it and make a bunch of money, uh, that way. And then organically build up our country. It's all great. It sounds great, but it didn't, um, spoiler alert. Cause I did end up reading the biography. It didn't, it didn't exactly work out. Now the reason it didn't work out is, you know, there are many different variables going on here, but at least one of them I guess, uh, if you want to offer a capitalistic critique, would be that um, the state-owned um, state-owned uh, industries weren't as good at predicting market fluctuations and adapting to um, the global market as perhaps the free market would have been. That's a possibility. There's also, you know, the Cold War and the general de de uh, instability of the region you know, myriad other problems that Nairi had to deal with that could have also attributed to why um, it ultimately failed. But he was not um, adverse to criticism later in life, so he wouldn't have minded people um, pointing out that it didn't it didn't quite work. Uh, all right, but that was one aspect, as I said, of Ujamaa. The larger, more important, way more legacy-defining aspect of Ujamaa is that it was a poly... The, the key word in there was that it was African socialism, that he was creating it for Africa. And this is where I think uh, why Nayuri is remembered so fondly is that he wanted to forge an African identity. This was the most important thing to him. This is why he insisted that Tanzania have uh, one party after independence. He wanted them to have one party because he wanted the idea of unity. He wanted everybody in the country working together. He didn't want them splint splintering off into factions. He predicted things like the unrest in uh, Rwanda and other places based off of people, um, based off of inner ethnic uh, conflicts. He didn't want any of that, right? And he also didn't believe that the independence in Tanzania could be guaranteed unless other countries in the region also were independent. So he wanted to contribute to efforts in uh, what was then called Rhodesia and South Africa to get rid of white minority rule. Uh, he was a pan-Africanist who believed in forging an African identity in real time. And he wanted people to be proud of where they were from, Swahili was a language that he got instituted as a national language. He translated Macbeth and another Shakespeare play into Swahili just so, just to prove to people that it could be uh, used as an official government language. And when he went to Scotland for his graduate studies, he 
demanded, and I don't actually know if this works, but he he wanted to demand that um, they accept Swahili as his second language. You know how you have to have a second language when you go to university. Um, all of this to say that it was important to him that these things be, uh, that they be in the, the minds of all Tanzanians, that this was a African country. It was their country. They had a identity, right? And they were one people now. And that, and that one people meant a citizen of Tanzania, not just black and not just, uh, you know, from this ethnicity or this tribe or this region. If you're, if you were, if you have your roots in Tanzania, you're a Tanzanian, um, you know, aside from like colonizers specifically, um, you're a Tanzanian and, uh, you are part of this thing. And then he wanted to keep that going across the continent. And he was big on trying to get, um, an East African commission started, which kind of fell through. And, um, you know, at the time there was a lot going on, so it didn't quite work, but this is the, this is the legacy. The legacy is being one of the first countries to demand their independence, achieving it way ahead of schedule. When the UN came to evaluate, first of all, how absurd is this? The UN came to evaluate whether or not, um, the region at the time, which was not called Tanzania, whether or not it was ready for independence. And they determined that they should be given independence no sooner than 1980. 1980. No, first of all, what you just waltz into somebody's country and tell them when they can be free. Anyway, they achieved this independence, uh, in, in the early 1960s. And, um, and that's why Nairi was so adamant that we got to stay together. We got to stay unified. And um, Ujamaa was part of that. That was supposed to help build that unity. You're not just you're not just uh, working here so that you can get money for yourself. You're working here to strengthen the nation and the nation is you. Um, so there were some things that he did in order to ensure this unity, which uh, have been called strong arm tactics. But they're not comparable to what was going on in other places in the continent. Um, so yeah. So to transition from, we talked about the book, those are the ideas. And then to talk about the man now that we're getting into this part of it. Um, this was really, as I was reading the biography, uh, getting a perspective on how this all actually shook out. So it basically seems like to sum up Nairi, if you could sum up a person who, um, gave his life to build a country for 30 years, 30, 37 years. Uh, to sum him up, it seems like he mostly did what was right and employed some strong art and tactics, but only because they were absolutely necessary. Now, I'm not saying that the ends justify the means, but what I am saying is that he wasn't a person who was cruelly torturing his political opponents and... Um, and abusing uh, the citizens of the country like other dictators. Uh, Idi Amin is an easy um, is an easy comp because they actually went to war. Um, so, uh, what they did have, though. So, okay. So, a couple of things that they did have. They did have one party. Now, Yuri suggests that they have one party. And obviously, if you have one party, then you're not going to have a diverse set of voices. So that's one thing that you could frown upon. And they did lock up political opponents and sometimes um, suppress other political voices. So those are also negative things. But a super positive thing that he did was 
he actually stepped down. He wasn't a dictator for life. He actually stepped down from public office. Later in life, he did um, support multiple parties coming in. He only felt like we should have one party at the beginning because he wanted people to be unified in Tanzania. Uh, I'll leave it to historians to argue about whether or not that's right or wrong. Uh, it's not. I, I don't care to make a moral judgment on that. And um, and the other thing was the book pointed out that he didn't torture people in a in the prisons, and and it wasn't often the case that he was carrying these things out so much as that the apparatus apparatus that he was in charge of were carrying these things out. So that's a little bit different. And what I mean is that he wasn't going in and saying uh, to his generals, his police force, his Gestapo, go out there, round up political dis dissidents, throw them in jail, and torture them. He wasn't doing that. Um, and that might seem like splitting hairs, but that's important on a continent where a lot of that happened. What's also important, and what the book doesn't point out, and to be fair, it is a short biography written by, I want to get this guy's name, uh, his name is Paul Bjork, uh, he's a professor um, in America. What's important to point out, and what this book doesn't point out, and what this professor says, is that, uh, first of all, this is not a definitive biography, right, it needs to be much longer. And because it's not definitive, I don't think it offers enough context for why Nayuri did the things that he did. Now, it offers some context, and I just talked about those things. But um, at the time, the instability of the region, at the time, the, the poverty, the absolute abject poverty that many Tanzanians were living in, and at the time, the Cold War and the proxy wars that were happening as a result of the Cold War were major influences um, throughout Africa and countries in the region were destabilized uh, either because of the Cold War directly, because of proxy wars leading, uh, being fueled by Cold War powers, or just because there were too many different disparate voices in one country, too many chefs in the kitchen, to use the chef example one more time. So a lot of what Nairi did, um, feels like it may have been, in retrospect, necessary. Uh, ultimately, when he did step down, he was open to criticism. He didn't mind being criticized. He remained an active citizen in Tanzania. And I think the part that redeems him in the eyes of most people is that, one, he stepped down. Two, he remained an active citizen. And three, he didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He lived in a simple house. His, that was built for him after he retired, just a normal house, not a normal house by maybe Tanzanian senators, but uh, nothing spectacular, it wasn't a mansion, he worked out in his garden, maybe, you know, cultivating a bit of an image, you know, but something like what Jimmy Carter does, uh, the American president, and, um, and he did things like send his kids to public school, they didn't get some uh, fancy education, he accepted a smaller salary when, when student protesters came to um, the presidential, I don't know, house, mansion, whatever they have, and they marched on the Capitol and they demanded that they be given better pay for the internships that they were working because, you know, they, they felt as white collar workers, they should get better pay. Nairi said, how dare you uh, do this? I'm just like you. And you want more money? I'll tell you what, we're not doing that. That's not going to happen. And I'll slash my own salary. And he did. He slashed his own salary. And when he went abroad and was um, hosted by foreign leaders of other countries, he had simple accommodations, nothing ostentatious, 
Um, I mean, of course, I'm sure here or there it happened. They did mention in the book that one time when he went to America, he was hosting. It was ridiculously ostentatious. Okay, fine. But in other places, he would generally ask, I just want to be in a normal, simple hotel. He really walked the walk. He really talked the talk. And um, that's not what happens most of the time. So I felt reading this book that uh, it was inspiring to see a person who could weather so much in a time where the entire world was against you, in a time where the identity of Africa and Tanzania and, you know, any name, any African country at the time, Zaire, Congo, Congo, Zaire, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, I mean, we're talking about literal places that are carved up by forces outside of their control, then handed back over to them, to African leaders, and then just, all right, figure it out. And he figured it out, more or less. Was it perfect? No. But a good example of like how difficult this was is the whole Zanzibar Revolution. So the Zanzibar Revolution happens, and very quickly, um, the two leaders of the country decide, all right, we should come together and form Tanzania. So this is how Tanzania forms. And the reason they did it so quickly was because if they didn't do it, uh, Nairi was, uh, was worried that the Cold War powers would use Zanzibar as uh, basically the Cuba of Africa. And so they very quickly made this alliance and they didn't have time to consult the people and they didn't have time to figure it out. They just had to come together. They didn't even, at the time, Tanzania didn't even exist and the name hadn't even been chosen yet. They just made an alliance. And so when you think about something like that, when you think about a leader of a country with a fragile identity being so scared for the stability and freshly won independence of his country that he's willing to throw it into further chaos by uh, striking an alliance with another independent autonomous region just so that they won't be further infiltrated by foreign powers. You realize how difficult uh, it was to be Julius Nyeri or any leader um, post-decolonization. So it doesn't justify the means, um, but the ends were ultimately good. Uh, that's not to say that they didn't have their share of problems. As I mentioned, the economy did not do well. It was an issue. They eventually did have to get help from the International Monetary Fund. And when that happened, Nyeri spoke out about uh neocolonialism which is still an issue that's brought up today um so the man has a lasting legacy he was a fantastic leader and uh yeah i was very happy that i got to read both of these books and so i went a little bit longer today than normal but this was two books and um you know you could keep talking about it for a long time if you wanted to i will add two things at the end here one um i'm waiting for that uh definitive biography of Julius Nairi, and I hope to see that it's written by a black author. I really do. In the meantime, um, I have just this week somehow learned who Walter Rodney is, and so I will eventually read how Europe underdeveloped uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Gonna read that. But as I was checking out his Wikipedia, I saw he also wrote a book called World War II and the Tanzanian Economy. So I want to get my hands on that and also uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. And I want to get my hands on more books by black writers who are writing history. 
That being said, next week I'm going to read something a little bit lighter. I read one that's a little bit hard and then one that's a little bit easy. So uh, next week, taking a slight break and going to read a murder mystery called uh, Blanche on the Lamb, written by Barbara Neely, who passed away in 2020. And yeah, looking forward to that. So that, that not next week, in two weeks. But uh, all right. So until then, um, stay safe, stay healthy, stay black, and keep reading.